Hello and welcome to a very special podcast series, Banker with a Soul, that chronicles the life and career of Mr. P. N. Vasudevan, MD and CEO, Equita Small Finance Bank. Mr. Vasudevan is often described as a banker with a soul for his contribution in uplifting the lives and livelihoods of thousands of families by offering small ticket loans and bringing them into the formal banking net. I'm your host, Gaurav Chaudhary. The core focus of this series, exclusive to Earshot, is to empower the listener about the inspirational contribution of Mr. Vasudevan, his people-first approach in life and work, and his remarkable story of remaining steadfastly focused on his goals despite challenges. In many ways, the series will zoom in and zoom out of his life stories to chronicle the journey of Equita's small finance bank led by an indefatigable Mr. Vasudevan. A very warm welcome, Mr. Vasudevan, and absolutely delighted to host you for this special series. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with, uh, with uh, something from your early days. You were born in uh, Madurantakam. Your ancestors belonged to Kanchipuram. Your great-grandfather was a Vedic scholar. Your grandfather was a professor of Sanskrit in Sanskrit College, Madurantakam, and later taught at the Banaras Hindu University in Varanasi. Your father was a Hindi teacher in a school. How did this distinguished legacy shape your thinking and worldview as you were growing up? Tell us about your early years. Yeah, hi. So, so I was, uh, you know, born in a family of five sons, no daughters. And yes, my sir. father was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were in uh, Tindivanam, uh, mm-hmm. that's a, a, a district in Tamil Nadu. And my father was a Hindi teacher in a, in a private school in Tindivanam. But in the 1960s, you know, we, in Tamil Nadu, we had that anti-Hindi agitation. And uh, because of that, uh, the Hindi as a subject was taken out of the syllabus of that particular school where my father was a teacher. And uh, so he had to look around for some other job. And uh, luckily, he was also a Sanskrit. Uh, uh, I mean, he had also learned Sanskrit. So he mm-hmm. applied for uh, Central School, Kendri Vidyalaya. And uh, so he got a posting in Kendri Vidyalaya inside the IIT Madras campus uh, in 1968. And so from Tindyonam, we as a family shifted to Chennai in 68. And yeah. uh, so that's how the whole journey of uh, our journey to Chennai started. Yes. So this is, a, this is an interesting turn of events, you know, the one that you just narrated that probably would have had uh, influence in your late life. Uh, as you said, in the 60s, you were born, you were about seven years old. I, 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 this is something where I read. Uh, there was, and as you mentioned, there was an anti-Hindi agitation in Tamil Nadu. As a result, the Hindi subject was removed from his school. Now, your father lost his job. Subsequently, he got a job as a Sanskrit teacher in Central School, Kendra Vidala, located in the IIT Madras campus. You moved to Chennai and lived in Vilachari, which was still a village. Now, help us understand this. Till the fifth standard, you studied in Tamil medium primary school run by a local panchayat. You did, you did well in your studies, was made a school pupil leader in the fifth standard. You continued with the sixth standard in a local Tamil medium Christian school where you did well and was made the class monitor. And suddenly things changed. And how did it influence your life? Yeah. So generally I used to be a, uh, a very studious student, if not a bright one necessarily. Uh, so the Tamil medium, the Velachari where we were living uh, in Chennai, it was a very, very small village in those days. And uh, it was a panchayat union at that time. 
and there is a panchayat uh, primary school one to five standards and it is obviously purely tamil medium so i was uh, reading in tamil medium uh, till fifth and i did become the school people leader in fifth because generally i think i was a very obedient uh, studious kind of a person maybe um, and i remember one incidents which happened in the fifth standard uh, mm -hmm. normally um, uh, you know as a school people leader they, there are some programs where you are supposed to talk uh, you know to the students and all that so generally i used to get the help from my father he'll write some speech i'll mug it up and then i'll go and kind of narrate it at the in the stage so there was one occasion where i don't remember why but i just was unprepared i mean somehow i didn't ask my father and he didn't give me a speech or something i went unprepared and i was sitting <laughs> i was sitting almost thinking that how what am i going to stand up and say <laughs> and, uh, and you know genuinely i mean it may look a little um, um, you know exaggerated but seriously you know i thought to myself is this the end of the world for me is this the end of the world for me if i get if i come out very looking very bad in this particular uh, meeting uh, is it the end of the world for me and um, then i could realize that you know it is really not the end of the world and mm -hmm. uh, then then that gave me a lot of comfort that you know there's still life after this uh, program and it's right. not going to be over and yeah. then, then i don't know what i did i don't know how we did and all that i don't remember all that but i still <laughs> i still remember that you know and that is something which has stuck to me even today you know even even now in the bank if there are some issues some people come and say uh, sir i want to say this something will happen and all that i the moment they tell me what's the problem i just step back and say is this the end of the world for the bank mm -hmm. and if it is not then i don't have to become worried you know yes it's an issue we'll focus and get it solved but right. i don't become worried <laughs> so <laughs> that attitude i think some of us stuck with me that you know there's nothing in life i mean there may be a couple of things in life which are really the end of the world and yeah. I, that none of us really come to those scenarios ever uh, but minus that everything else is an issue to be solved and handled and moved on so there's no right, need right. to really get worried and uh, things like that so that's that's something which stuck with me even today and mm -hmm. then i moved to sixth standard in a christian school that was a uh, english medium school so for the first time in sixth standard i was learning a b c d right <laughs> no it's a very it's a very inspirational story you know you you as you just mentioned you were you started learning english only in the sixth standard and that to the alphabet and uh, i read somewhere that you 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 mentioned somewhere that so poor as your english that during the half yearly exam and there was an incident where you needed a thread to tie your answer sheets you went to the invigilator and asked for nool as you did not know the english word for it he was not a tamilian so he did not understand what you wanted so finally after considerable considerable thought you said that you wanted a rope uh, run, run us through this experience uh, how did the teacher finally respond and and you know and uh, when you look back now at those days uh, these these are remarkable experiences that would have helped very uh, you know you would, would have taught you various lessons for your later life and career yeah absolutely i mean those those are instances which stick in your mind you know uh, i joined um, I, at the very my mother was very insistent that i join an english medium school and my father yeah. was a teacher in kendra vidyalaya and yet right. we were all in tamil medium all of us were in tamil medium right. so she kept pestering my father to put us into english medium 
So I was asked to write an entrance exam in Kendriya Vidyalaya for uh, seventh standard because I had already completed sixth. But then right. uh, I see, I assume that I wrote so badly that the principal called me, to, uh, father, and said, "Don't put him in seventh. He will not be able to manage. If you are really keen, then put him in sixth again. Let him start from sixth." And so I went into sixth. And uh, you know, when uh, when I was just in the stage of learning my uh, rhymes. these people are all talking in english their lessons <laughs> <are> in english <laughs> and i had no knowledge of hindi i was not having any exposure to hindi but right. these people are already they have already learned hindi from their first standard onwards and in sixth standard not only hindi as a language but uh, social studies you know history civics geography was in hindi <laughs> that's the, right <laughs> they are all learning in hindi subjects and i didn't know any knowledge of what hindi is all about <laughs> and, and English, of course, I had, uh, I was assisted in the rhymes uh, standards. So I could not talk to anybody in the class. Nobody could uh, be conversing with me. And I had only one friend from Balachery, right. Srinivasan. Yeah. Uh, I could only talk to him because he will speak speak to me in Tamil. So I was, he was the only person I could speak to. He was yeah, a brilliant guy. So he finally went on to get into IIT Madras, and then of course he joined TCS and. He, he he did well for himself, but he was a my friend in sixth standard. He was right. my friend, and in this exam, the incidency report yes. Um, so I wanted a thread, but I didn't know the word for <laughs> that in English. So finally, after a lot of thinking and uh, straining, I came with this uh, word rope. I thought rope yeah. means thread. So I asked him, "Can I have a rope, please?" And uh, you know, there's a little bit of uh, you know. Uh, Uh, snickering around the classrooms and all that, and I think they all realized what I'm really asking for. Absolutely, uh, extremely embarrassing. Extremely embarrassing. In fact, I remember in in the class, uh, you know, my teacher, the Hindi teacher, gave the first test in Hindi, and then after correcting, she gave the notebook to us and said, "I'll call you by name, and all of you, please uh, give me your mark. I'll note it down." And okay. I was thinking that why couldn't she have noted on the mark and given the uh, notebook? Why should he do it like this? And then yeah. she started calling names, and everybody stood up and was giving their mark. And uh, mine was actually one and a quarter out of twenty. That was what I had done. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, my that. name yes. is in V. My name came last. So by the time my name was called, we were all crowding the teacher. You know, we were all sixth, obviously small boys. <laughs> <laughs> so I went near her ears. I was standing ready when she called me name. I just whispered into her ears my mark. Right. So other fellows will uh, you know hear me give my mark. You know it must have been extremely tough for you. I can I can relate to some of these because in my own life, not obviously my life. I mean your life is an inspiration, but uh, I also come from a very small town in. Uh, Assam, and when I, I so I started writing in English only after I joined college in Delhi, and otherwise I went to a completely vernacular medium school, Assamese medium government school, in in <laughs> in Assam. So I can understand, I can relate to it, and it's uh, so. Uh, I mean, it it becomes a little bit of inhibition set in, but once you overcome it, it the, a whole new world of opportunities open up, and which is which is something that I can. I can really, really vouch for, uh, and 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 you, you're, you, in your case, it's an inspiration for millions. Uh, you know, somehow you scrap, scrape through your sixth standard, as you just mentioned. But then your father was transferred to the central school, Trivandrum, and you all moved to Trivandrum. Uh, but the thing here is that, uh, but there's a defining change in this period. Uh, there was a lending library near your house. Your father enrolled you in that library. 
was it a boon for you getting enrolled in that library? Because it may have opened up opportunities for you to read books and fiction. Uh, and then that would have opened up a whole new world of opportunities to, by learning the language itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I think was an extremely important turning point for me, I believe. Um, because obviously I just couldn't speak English. And in Trivandrum, though, either they speak in English or Hindi. And a few of them will speak in Malayalam. No, not on one guy will speak. <laughs> and uh, somehow, I don't know how or whatever, my father enrolled me in this uh, learning library near our house. And I started going there and taking some books. And I remember Enid Blyton was my first book. And yeah. then, then I just became a voracious reader, voracious reader. I think the next four years uh, from 7th to 10th, in four years, I must have read a few thousand books. And mm. I became a voracious reader. I was extremely interested in all the storybooks. And as I was keeping on reading, I think that really was what helped me improve my English. Just reading storybooks really Absolutely. helped me improve my English. And for your 11th and the 12th standard, you were back at the, in Central School at IIT Madras. Your mother wanted you to join the IIT. And you were so innocent that you thought since you were studying in the IIT school, you would probably automatically go into IIT. You didn't know about the entrance exam and did not prepare for it. You were still made to sit for the exam and you failed. Now, what went through during this experience and what were the learnings from it? Yes, so in 11th and 12th, I could see some of the classmates uh, doing extra reading for IIT exam. I didn't really know that. I, I mean, I was not aware of it and, and somehow you know, it was foolish on my part, I believe. But I just was completely unaware that there's something like an entrance exam. The way I moved from 11 to 12th, I just thought from 12th, I'll just move to this college because I was inside the campus. So I <laughs> disconnect the school and the college as individual you know, entities. I couldn't disconnect. I yeah. just thought from here, I just go there. And um, and for all this, actually, my eldest brother was a mm. chemistry teacher. Mm. And he and uh, two of his uh, colleagues in maths and physics had formed a consortium of uh, MPC to mm. teach students for uh, preparing for entrance exam. You know, in those days, right. we didn't have all these institutional pro, you know, uh, coaching classes. It was mm -hmm. teachers and typically three uh, subjects, MPC, they will form together and they will team, form a team and uh, students go between them for all their uh, things. And my brother was one of those uh, gang of teachers mm. and he was teaching chemistry for students and yet he also didn't tell me to prepare and I had no idea. Mm. And my mother said I should write and join IIT Madras. Mm. Uh, then I I said, okay, no problems. Then my brother said, if you are going to write, why don't you come for a tuition also? That's so right. <laughs> I said, okay, no problem. Then he took me and joined me in his own three-member program. And I went for the first physics class uh, taught by his friend. And the first day when I went and the kind of sums they are solving and the kind of responses the students are giving, mm. I knew that I'll never get it. I was so, so far backward, so far backward. <laughs> I knew that there was not a single small remote chance also. And mm. then it was very close to the exam time anyway. So I told my mother, please don't uh, put pressure on me. Let me at least read my 12th properly. She mm. said, you have to do it only. So I said, okay, and I went through all the coaching classes, but I knew that I had zero probability and naturally I didn't get anywhere near it. So right. then I told my mother that if you're really serious about we go into IIT, mm. then at least my next two, two brothers, you should put them into tuition from 11th itself. In those days, it was only 11th, not 6th like today. So mm. I told her, put them into tuition from 11th. 
and uh, right. so she did do that and actually both of them went into iit madras at some points uh, you know in their in their life this is fascinating because you pl- you placated her mother by saying uh, you the family should prepare your two younger brothers well in advance so that they would fulfill your mother's dream of getting into iit and finally both of them got into iit madras and did well so i believe one of them is in singapore and the other is in the us now true 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 right uh, and 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 the uh, and your elder brother who you just mentioned who was a chemistry professor at the guru nanak college helped to get helped you to get admitted to the mj in college to do bsc physics but you had no clue by then what you wanted to do do in life so those days uh, you did, you know mostly students did what they were told and after graduation you did not know what you were supposed to do how did cs happen and because one of your brothers was pursuing a ca course so was he an influence and you know and eventually uh, this is what you let this is what led you to become finally what you did in life as a professional banker and uh, you know with a remarkable uh, field of contribution across the universe of finance yes so after college i mean i went and did bsc physics <laughs> without any idea why i'm doing that because my eldest brother was chemistry my second brother was maths so he said mm-hmm. take physics so i said okay fine i'll do i'll take physics and um, i went through it i think i got some decent mark in bsc also mm-hmm. i think it was around 92% or something you know we just study isn't it in those days we never question anybody why should i study or something our job is to study so we'll just study that how right. we were in those days but i really didn't understand much of what it was and uh, then after the exam after the degree i asked my brother what should i do now mm. he said uh, you know i am a professor my the second brother is a, a chartered accountant why don't you become a company secretary right i had not even heard of that till then i said okay no problem you tell me what i should do so he took me to the acs institute uh, tamil nadu chapter and southern southern india chapter and then he enrolled me there and uh, then they gave me a set of books uh for uh, study material when i brought them home and i started reading that was the first time i think in my life that you know studies was really something which was interesting to me something i could connect when right. i studied when i was studying law and all the legal papers uh, the contract act the companies act and all that so that was the first time i think i could really connect to what i was studying and it was very interesting i was very fascinated and uh, so so i really took it up uh, very strongly from there on and you know you you as you said you were, you were really happy you you it was company law and law to you was a, was very very interesting uh, you felt highly motivated to study and i understand before the intermediate exam the institute conducted a mock test those who scored the first three places mock exam got the tuition fee refunded you did very well in the mock exam and came within the first three your tuition fee was refunded you were on top of the world and soon after you appeared for the actual exam but there was a shock waiting for you can can you run us through this experience yeah so uh, you know the mock exam that the institute conducted i was within the top 3 so my fees were actually refunded and um, then at then the exam came and i wrote the exam uh, i had written only one group there are two groups in inter uh, i was only preparing for one group because within 6 months of graduation you can write only one group so i was writing within the first 6 months of my graduation so i took that first group and uh, when the result uh, date came um, so i took one bag from my mother and i took some money from her 
telling her that I'll go to the institute, check the results, and on the way I'll bring some, buy some sweets and come. So mm. she gave me a bag to bring the sweets and also some cash. And then I went to the institute, and you know, in those days, obviously, you go to the institute to check your marks. There was no internet. So right. I went there and I looked at the notice board and uh, lo and behold, my number was not there. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I kept looking and looking and looking and it just didn't exist. And yeah. then finally it sank that I have failed. And, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was an extremely difficult thing to take. And, uh, I, you know, I was totally not, expe- I mean, it was completely unexpected. And uh, then I came home and uh, then said I have failed. And uh, for a week, I think I was knocked out, absolutely right. knocked out. I didn't do anything at all. I used to just uh, wake up and sit in a corner. I'll not take bath. I'll not eat much. Yeah, I'll not go anywhere. I'll just sit in that corner for the entire one week. Yeah. The world had crashed around me, you know. And yeah. uh, then finally, I got so you, out of that. So you could not understand what went wrong. You were obviously devastated. Now, you were unable to digest this failure. So you, as you said, you sat in a dark corner of the house for seven days without moving. You slept there, ate there, but did not come out. Eventually, you told your father that you wanted to work. Is this how stenography happened? Yeah, so stenography was something I had learned in my school days itself. <clears throat> Again, it was, it's a very fascinating subject, stenography and typing. Mm. Both are fascinating and somehow I had a lot of fascination for that. So it was a hobby for me. So, you know, in school and the early part of my college, I had completed a high speed and short end. High speed is uh, the 120 watts per minute. Then right. there is a special exams uh, for stenographers beyond 120 watts per minute, up mm. to 250 watts. That's the maximum test that is available in India. Right. So I wanted to do all the 250. So I, I went on to 150, I passed, then 180, I passed. Then 210. 210 was the next uh, speed. I wrote 210 and I was preparing for 220. But 210 I failed. Mm. Uh, so I wrote the 210 again and uh, that next time I passed. But then the interest I lost. So I stopped at 210. And in typing, so 67.5 words per minute to the max test available. That's so right. I had to get that. So, uh, so, but this was just done as a hobby. But when the scenario happened and I told my father, let me go to work. I can't bear this any longer that I sit at home, study and fail. So let right. me work and uh, study parallelly. Then the stenography came well in hand. So I applied for a stenography position in a medical company. It was part of some Modi group. I had, uh, you know, in those days, there used to be a group called Modi group. Win Medicare was it, was it Win Medicare where you use yes. your stenography skills yes. to get a job at the reg- right. as a regional manager to the regional manager. That's right. It was Win Medicare. So uh, so I got a job as a stenotypist to the uh, regional manager, and uh, that was my first job. So it was uh, and and it was very nice because I learned a lot about how letters are drafted, how business are conducted, how reviews are done because I was yeah. my regional manager. Was handling all of South, <clears throat> so all the regional, the state level managers, and all that used to report to him. So there used to be a lot of daily sales reports and monthly analysis and all that. So I was involved in all that. It was very interesting to see how businesses are actually done. Right, uh, and meanwhile you wrote your ACS exam again and passed the intermediate. Before the final exam, you were required to have work experience as a management trainee, and those those were the rules, uh, the ACS Institute rules. You got the role as a management trainee at Cholamandalam Investment and Finance, which is part of the Murugappa Group in Chennai. And I think, believe that was in 1986. 
When your final exams approached, you took uh, three months leave from office and studied very hard. This time you cleared all the three groups together in the first attempt and came all India third. Yet, you did not celebrate. Why? <laughs> yes. So, I was uh, preparing for the exam. The Chola, Chola was very kind to give me a good three months leave to prepare. Mm-hmm. Uh, very nice of them. So, I, was, I used to sit and study for about uh, 16 hours a day uh, um, and prepare really hard. But through that entire three months preparation, the thought that was going on in my mind is that, you know, the result is not in my hands. Mm. It's really not in my hands. You know, I can as easily fail as pass Um, because these are things where, you know, what you do alone is not enough. It's also comparative to what others are doing. And uh, if there are a lot of people who do better than you, then you come at a level where you end up failing. Because uh, the institutes have a quota and they don't want uh, beyond a certain cutoff, they don't let everybody pass. So I knew that it was not in my hands, whatever I was uh, working on. Uh, And so this thing was constant in my mind that what will I do if I fail? What will I do? Will I go into one more uh, depression or will I be able to continue my life as normal? So the thought of failure was so high in me that finally when I I went to the institute and checked my results, I only looked at first group. Then my number was not there. Then I looked at the second group. It was again not there. Then I looked at the third group. It was also not there. So then I thought, oh my gosh, I seem to have failed in all the groups. Then I went slightly up. All the groups together, there's a portion where they say all the groups together. I went and looked there without too much hope. And then suddenly my number was there. So I realized that I have passed all the three groups. But for a few seconds, I thought I failed all the three because it was not there. So after the results, when you came back home and told your mother, uh, and and since you did not want to celebrate uh, because of the fear of failure, as you said, uh, you must have been quite quiet and somber at home. So how did your mother respond? I mean, did your mother think that you had failed again? And when you told her that uh, the actual results, how did she respond to it? So I used to go by cycle to office in those days. So I, as usual, I went from the station, I went home in my cycle. I parked the cycle on the side and then I came in. Then I changed my dress, uh, washed my face and all that. And then sat down for dinner. I didn't say anything to anybody. And mm-hmm. my mother also did not ask me because she must have probably thought that I failed again. That's why I'm not saying anything. So mm-hmm. she didn't ask anything. She gave me food. And then after I finished eating, then she asked, uh, Enodachi, what happened? Uh-huh. Uh, then I said, I have passed. Mm. <laughs> and uh, she said, what? I said, yes, I have passed. Then she said, but why didn't you not tell as soon as you came? I said, I don't know why. Uh, it, it just didn't feel like, uh, you know, such a great thing. And uh, then, of course, they were all very happy. But frankly, somehow, <clears throat> I never felt that joy, uh, mm. which maybe I should have. I don't know. but. But it just, and I think from then, from that to today, I don't think I really am a person who celebrates. You know, I don't stand in the way of others celebrating. I encourage, I motivate them to celebrate. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But I think internally for me, whatever I do, whatever happens, uh, you know, it just, just, just one more thing. And uh, I say, okay, fine, next what? Rather than saying, wow, great. So I think this ability to celebrate, I think, went away in that uh, first failure. Uh, tell us something about your Cholamandalam uh, years. You know, you, while working with Cholamandalam Finance, you enrolled uh, 
as an evening scholar for the for Beale in uh, Madras Law College. You then, by 1989, you had become a full-fledged lawyer. Uh, tell us something about your experience in Cholamandalam Finance, because you know the company had corporate customers who had defaulted in far-flung areas such as Dhanbad and Asansol, and you had to travel to all these areas, met defaulters, and convince them courteously, of course, and pleading as well as by showing them legal repercussions. Tell, take us through your Chola years. Yes, so Chola, so I joined as a management trainee. It was a one-year contract. At the end of one year, I was supposed to leave Chola. But uh, luckily for me, the assistant company secretary resigned just around that time. And I had also yeah. cleared the exams. So mm. the company secretary asked me whether I would like to continue in the company as an assistant secretary. I said, why not? I'll be more than happy. So I became the assistant secretary. Then mm. I was that for about two years, 80 till 88. Then mm. uh, in 89, uh, the company secretary resigned. <laughs> and the managing director asked me whether I would like to become the company secretary. Obviously, mm-hmm. I jumped at it. And mm-hmm. so I became the company secretary. And by then, I had completed my law. So mm-hmm. I was also given a lot of legal work of recoveries. Uh, Chola used to do corporate loans in those days. Only yeah. corporate. There was no retail in Chola in, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So a lot of corporate defaulters in different parts of the country. So I was assigned a legal recovery. So I used to go and, um, you know, travel to all parts of the country to talk to people and uh, recover the money. And I remember, you know, I used to travel to Asensals and Dunbars of the world. You know, as soon as you get down in the station in Asensal, your entire dress will become black-coated because there's so much of coal flying all over the place. Yes, that's right. Uh, sorry yeah. to interrupt, sir, but these are very dangerous areas controlled by the mining mafia. Uh, weren't you scared? <laughs> See, one is that I'm a very, uh, you know, Tiny, tiny, pinny kind of a character. I, I'm not a very strongly. <laughs> and uh, yeah. second thing is that I, my English, my Hindi is pathetic. Pathetic to the core. I can't really speak well in Hindi. I know about 10, 20 words. I manage with that. Yeah. So when you go to a place like Asansals and Dunbar's, it's, uh, it's really a uh, mafia-driven market and, you know, coal mine mafia. All that is supposed to be very strong there. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm going into the coal mine, not even in the city. I am The coal mines are typically about 40-50 kilometer drive outside the city. And then there, it is like a full kingdom of someone there because no one else generally can come inside that uh, coal mines. And I had to go to that coal mine, talk to that owner and, and you know, pressurize him, threaten him or whatever to uh-huh. make him either pay or surrender his uh, poke lines or surrender his cranes or something like that. And right. uh, I weighed all of some 60, 70 kg. And those guys used to weigh nothing less than 100. <laughs> you know, They can probably take me and bury me underground and nobody would ever know about it. So it was very interesting. It was a mental game for me. You know, when I used right. to start my travel from Chennai, I used to say in my mind, what should happen so that when I come back, I will be happy. So I will <laughs> define that for outcome for myself. And yeah. then when I'm there in the mines with the owners, I used to say, this is what I want from this guy. How do I get this from this guy? You know, I can't threaten him. I can't shout. I can't put pressure. I know that. So what else can I do so that he does what I want him to do? So it was always like a mental game, mental challenge and mental game, you know, in those days. So looking back, do you think this was a great learning experience and also honed your legal and negotiating skills? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it helped me to, uh, you know, talk to people far bigger than you or far stronger than you and still get what you want by just staying focused on what you want. And then mm-hmm. going extremely well prepared. You know, you have to be well prepared in any negotiation or any discussion or any transaction. You have to go really well prepared. You have to know what the other fellow will want from you and what you want from them. And if this is what you want from them, what is it that you should say and do so that at the end of it, you get what you want. So right. I think the whole power of negotiation, discussion, dialogue with uh, people who are not under your control, uh, that really helped a lot. Right. And around that time, Cholamandalam was also starting a vehicle finance division. You were asked to be the business head of this division. You were completely new to this, new to this subject. How did you build the vehicle finance division and business from scratch? So uh, Anandan was the MD of Chola in those days. And uh, I went and told uh, Mr. Anandan that, you know, uh, I am in Chola. I'm only getting exposure on companies. I, but as a company secretary, I would love to have an exposure on, say, excise uh, customs and all that. So can he recommend me to uh, another group company, uh, which is a manufacturing company, where as a company secretary, you get exposure to other, uh, you know, uh, act, other uh, laws. Then it was he who suggested, do you really want to do that or you, would you like to come into business? So mm-hmm. I said, what business? He said, uh, we are starting this vehicle finance. So if you are okay, why don't you start this vehicle finance for Chola? Mm-hmm. I said, but I don't know anything about financing or vehicles or anything. He said, yeah, yeah, but that's okay. If you are willing to learn, I am willing to help. I said, okay, if mm-hmm. you are willing to take the risk, then who am I to say no? And I jumped at it. And that's how I got into vehicle finance, suddenly leaving the entire company secretary and legal profession behind me. I started the vehicle finance and uh, we put up the first three branches, I remember. And um, my first branch manager in Chennai, a person called Israel, was a thorough master in vehicle finance. He was already there in that market. He knew a lot of people. He knew the business. So Mm. he became my mentor and guide, actually, though he was my branch manager. But yeah. I learned a lot from him and uh, I just used to say that, you know, Israel, you take me to the dealer, take me to the customer and tell me how the whole thing is done, teach me how it is done and all that. And he used to take me on his bike and uh, actually teach me uh, what vehicle finance is all about. And uh, in return for his teaching me, my contribution to him was the office uh, related issues. You know, right. I made uh, the uh, the processing of application easier documenting easier so all those things that is my forte my mm. ability to manage the admin part of it was my forte so i made right. his life easy as a sales guy so that he could spend more time on the right. field and he helped me everything on the field absolutely and you know your departure from cholamandalam is also could you know at hindsight, in hindsight may have been also another turning point in your career uh, chola wanted to have a joint venture with dbs bank singapore uh, you were asked to head the joint venture and you did all the work to set it up. You were taken to Singapore and introduced as the CEO of the new venture. However, when the operations were about to begin, the joint venture partner wanted someone from their side to be the CEO. Uh, probably they wanted you to accept a lower role, which you were not prepared for. And and is that the reason you left Chola Mandalam after 20 years of long association? Yeah, Chola was like my home. home you know, I, I mean, not even for one minute in the 20 years I ever thought I will leave Chola. Not even one minute. Not even once. It was like my home. Just get up in the morning and, and like the way you brush without thinking, 
and yeah. you walk into jola without thinking that's it was yeah. as uh, comfy as that for me and mm. jola and the murugappa group are really good places for professionals to work seriously good mm. places there's a lot of respect for professional lot of space given and uh, we are allowed to do so much of independent uh, work there and all that and i think it, even today it continues you see in murugappa group most of the senior managers would end up retiring they hardly ever leave Uh, that's the kind of culture that we have in uh, the Murugappa group and the Chola in particular. Mm. So, so it's uh, I really enjoyed all my entire twenty years, and out of my twenty years, I think seventeen, eighteen years was under Mr. Anandan as my boss, and uh, so he used to take care of my career, everything. You know, I never bothered about my promotions or increments or anything. I never bothered even once. I never bothered about it. because he always took care of it everything mm-hmm. my job was only to just work and deliver and right. uh, and then we went into the strap with uh, dbs bank it was a joint equal joint venture 70 murugappa group had 75% in uh, chola then they sold sir 37.5% to dbs so they became mm-hmm. equal equal partner joint venture company and uh, yes uh, i was uh, by then i was already heading the ch- company chola all functions i was the ceo I was not designated CEO at the time, but uh, all functions are reporting to me, and I was a uh, uh, about to be designated a CEO of the company. That was the situation. Uh, mm. And then uh, DBS Bank came for the first board meeting, and then they said they wanted somebody from their end to be the CEO, not from the group's uh, side. And mm. uh, unfortunately, the group couldn't really, you know, kind of uh, protest or whatever. They couldn't really do much about that. And then uh, Mr. Algapan, I met. Uh, and i asked him what is to be done he said what can i do you know they really want to run the company and mm. we i really don't have a choice mm. um, and then the position they offered me was something ridiculous you know i was the ceo i was handling the entire company you know, all the business and um, collections and uh, operations it finance treasury secretary everything was under me from mm. there they wanted me to move into a sales head for vehicle finance where even collections won't report to me forget anything mm. else i mean obviously they must have known that i i nobody can really take it so maybe whatever it is so i, I had to leave uh, so i finally had to take the call to leave and uh, then i told mr anandan that you know there's really no choice so i'll have to go and he said yeah i think you have to go there's really nothing we can do for you here So it must have been heartbreaking. And after a twenty-year-long association, you joined DCB Bank at Mumbai as the head of consumer banking. And this is interesting because it must have been a challenging work experience for you. Because so far, you had dealt only with assets, but now you were dealing with both assets and liabilities. How was this experience? Yes, so I I got an offer in DCB Bank in Bombay. So we shifted family to Bombay, and mm. it was a combination of uh, asset and liability. For the first time, I was knowing about liabilities. We had seventy-two branches in DCB at that point in time, mm. uh, but I had a good liability head. Um, so there's a good guy who was a very well-experienced banker who was heading my liabilities. So again, like in vehicles, I used to rely lean on him. and uh, learn from him what liability is all about and uh, how do you go around mobilizing kasa td and uh, selling third party uh, you know products and uh, things like that so i used to really learn from him and then i had a person called anthony who was heading my uh, third party distribution so through him i used to learn about the entire uh, third party distribution products and all that and uh, my boss uh, <clears throat> you know 
Gautam, uh, he himself was a thoroughbred uh, banker and uh, he was a very strong liability guy. So I used to learn a lot from him on the liability part of the business. And um, so he used to be very, uh, I mean, he, is a, he, he was uh, from Citibank uh, background, uh, mm. very strong on liability. So I used to learn a lot from him on, on the entire liability part of it. For example, I learned, I mean, he was the one who told me that, you know, when an account, uh, when there's a debit in a savings account or a current account, uh, mm. then as a banker, we have to see where is the money going and mm. chase the money to the destination account. And if that mm. destination account is not in our bank, but in a different bank, then we have to reach out to our customer and ask him, why has he made this payment to someone whose bank account is elsewhere? And mm. then he introduces us to that person. And then we go to that person and say that I have sold or referred us to you. Can you open an account with us? So you you chase money wherever it goes. And that's what yeah. liability is all about. Never leave the trail of money out of your side. So a lot of things Absolutely. used to engage me. Interesting. Uh, and these are fascinating insights. Uh, but you but you had to move back to Chennai under different circumstances uh, because in Bombay, uh, in Mumbai, which was Bombay then, your daughter was about two years old and was constantly falling sick. She could not bear the pollution of Mumbai and doctors told you to take her back to Chennai. Uh, how difficult a decision was this? Yes, so she started developing bronchitis. That's the final report that we got from the doctor. And the doctor said, you have to shift now. Otherwise, she can become a permanent uh, problem for her. So Mm. we really had no choice. So initially, the plan was that my wife and daughter will move down to Chennai. I will still continue in Bombay. And, um, you know, the um, so that's the initial thought. Um, and so we got an admission for my daughter here in uh, in a play school because she was, I think, three years old at that time. So we got an mm-hmm. admission in a play school near our house in Chennai. Our house was anyway retained in Chennai, so that was not an issue. So we got an admission mm-hmm. and all preparations were on to move my wife and daughter back to Chennai, me staying yeah. there. But mm-hmm. when it came closer to that time, then uh, both of us were uncomfortable with this thought that we'll, uh, you know, I'll sit there and she'll be sitting here. And right. then we said, well, what's the point of doing this kind of stuff? We, we yeah. as well just find a job in Chennai and get back and be together. So finally, we took that call very close to the date of shifting. And uh, so that's it. We just packed up and came back to Chennai with uh, nothing on hand for me at that time. Uh, yeah. But we just shifted. So you, so you relocated to Chennai. Uh and you didn't have any job in, in Chennai, your options were limited. Probably you could not go back to Chola Mandalam. Uh, you didn't want to join a bank at the regional le- level as that could have been some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you were already working at far higher levels. Um, and you, if, if you had John joined at the regional level, you may have been forced to work under some of your earlier juniors. Is this how microfinance happened and, and was it uh, how difficult were those days and how did microfinance come about? Yes, so I really had not much of a choice uh, from Chennai and uh, then I was wondering what to do. And that's the time when microfinance was in the news for all the right reasons of uh, how as a, as a process it helps the poor people to come out of poverty and uh, you know uplift their life and all that. A lot of articles used to come on microfinance in those days in 2006 mm-hmm. and seven. And um, I remember somewhere in 2003-04, when I used to be in Chola, um, Nachiket Moore, who was then the uh, executive director or DMD of ICSA Bank, he had come to Chola once and to make a presentation on microfinance and why Chola should uh, get into that. 
So mm. I had some brief exposure to microfinance uh, because of Mr. Nachiket Moore. Um, mm. And uh, but then we didn't do much in Chola about that, so that got dropped out. So in 2006-7, there's a lot of articles on microfinance and it's right. a good effect on all that. So then I thought, why not we move, uh, do something in microfinance? Uh, and so what I did is uh, I, I started collecting data of microfinance companies as well as uh, some consultants who are operating in that space. And then I thought, uh, which is a company where I should try to seek some you know job opportunities. So that's how the whole thing started. The idea of setting up MFI germinated in your mind during those days. But uh, the and, but I understand the two people who were instrumental in you becoming an entrepreneur are Sandeep Farias of Unitas, Bengaluru, and Sarah Jari of IMFR, IFMR, Chennai. Uh, both of them suggested that you start an MFI yourself instead of working in one. Uh, and they promised all the help in setting up the new venture pro bono. Uh, so how did the new microfinance institution come about? Yes, so I met Sandeep uh, Farias of Unitas in Bangalore, and then I told him, this is my background and I'm looking for a job based out of Chennai. Mm. Then he suggested, why should you look for a job? Why don't you start a microfinance company? I said, how can I start? You know, I don't have money and all that. I'm just a normal employee, professional employee. Uh, then he said, no, 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 you please think about it. I'll give you uh, all the contacts in the MFA industry. You can study it and then tell me, you know, why you can't start something yourself. Then he, one of the names he gave me was Sarajari from IFMR Trust in Chennai. Mm-hmm. So I met her and she also said the same thing. She said, uh, you know, you should start a MFA of your own. And she, I remember she went to the board and made a lot of drawings on the board to say what microfinance is all about, how it works. And, and uh, if you start a company, what can be done? And mm-hmm. uh, these two people are really instrumental in seeing Eating this thought into my mind that, you know, I can actually start a company uh, of my own. And, uh, mm. you know, Sandeep, of course, I'm still very closely in touch. But uh, Zara Jari, you know, she moved away to um, Swiss and uh, I lost contact. But, uh, you know, I'll forever remain indebted to both of them because they are the ones who actually started me on this whole journey. It's interesting because uh, both of them were competitors, yet they gave you all the relevant information. And in you know, in today's age, you cannot imagine people sharing their knowledge with a competitor. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, but uh, tell us more about uh, your experience with meeting the poor, because uh, setting up an MFI gave you the opportunity to meet the poor, and and uh, you you were you were meeting really poor people and getting to know them, how they live, the level of challenges that they faced, in spite of every difficulty. Importantly, how they kept smiling, and that is something that remains. Uh, so very true of everywhere in India. Uh, did you find microfinance as a very useful product for the borrowers given their high-cost alternate options? Yes, so uh, I went to some of the MFA companies and they actually, you know, very uh, surprisingly, they were happy to help me understand the whole business, <laughs> even though mm. they knew that someday I wanted to start something on my own. Right. Uh, because MFA in those days was like that, very accommodative, I would say. Mm. And um, so they took me to the field in Chennai, I remember, in Ashoknagar. Ashoknagar is in Chennai, uh, one of yeah. the past areas. So I, they took me to, to Ashoknagar. And then uh, as we were, uh, I was on the bike of, uh, I was sitting on the bike uh, of some sales and field uh, staff of that MFA company. And uh, from the main road, he suddenly in one small lane, he just took a left. And then we went into the lane and within 50 meters, Mm-hmm. from high posh locality of Chennai, 
within 50 meters i was suddenly seeing something which is dramatically opposite you know hmm. narrow roads congested roads open drainage and uh, you know houses which are obviously not of a very uh, healthy standards and uh, it is a very different world totally different world all of 50 meters separates mm-hmm. a world which is very different to the posh locality of ashoknagar and right. uh, then the meeting took place um, uh, members of that group came and lot of uh, uh, light bantering and lot of uh, pleasant pleasantries exchanges between them and the staff and it was all very riveting for me riveting right. and then i could realize the kind of uh, you know poverty that they were all living in but at the same time they were actually smiling and laughing you yeah, know absolutely uh, and i was so taken aback how can someone who is, seems to be struggling in life so much have the ability to smile and laugh and you know here we are always cribbing about what we don't have yeah, so it was amazing amazing experience uh, and therefore the idea of starting a most efficient and transparent company was born now let me take you to your days of working from the road uh, you, you used to leave your house at 9 in the morning carry a lunch box go to a byline in any part of the city and park under a tree take your laptop out and start to work you had the vision of the model of a company you wanted to create uh, the the company that you wanted to create including raising foreign investment you wanted to do it professionally uh, what were the challenges and you know if you were to do a few things differently what would those be so in those early days uh, <clears throat> the only thing i had was this thought in my mind that yes we should start a company Mm-hmm. and there was nothing else and um, i didn't have an office obviously and um, so so but i didn't want to sit at home and do the work from home because you don't right. you, you i think sitting at home and all that i think will leave you feeling depressed that you know you are jobless you know mm-hmm. so you are out of job you are jobless so i didn't want to do that <laughs> so i wanted to just get out of the house as if i am really going for a walk mm-hmm. and so i used to take a tiffin box and uh, drive away and sit on a byline under a tree switch off the motor and uh, start doing my work and mm. uh, my biggest challenge in those days was what do i do for uh, my you know going to the loo uh, mm. you know, i am sitting on the road i i find <laughs> it i mean i was really not able to bring myself to just kind of you know live on the road <laughs> so, so so the first thing i will do when i sit in the car is fix two appointments to meet anybody <laughs> Yeah, one in the morning, one in the evening, fix with somebody so that I'll go to their office and I'll use their loo. Right. So <laughs> that's how it used to be done. And um, yeah, and then I remember uh, finally my uh, uh, charter accountant who helped me to prepare the financial projections for yeah. the company. Right. Uh, his office was right next door to my office, my house. And yeah. uh, then when he asked me where I'm in my office, I said, I don't have an office. Then he mm. said, why don't you use this table in my office just use this table till you get something of your own mm. so uh, that was the first office a table in my charter accountant's office was my first office and so i started from there but even there it was just walking distance it was next next to building actually to my house but Absolutely. even then i used to take my tiffin box and not go home for lunch because you know just going home for lunch somehow i felt will take away my focus on on the business part of it Absolutely. even that disturbance so it has to be from the morning till evening it has to be just focused on what you want to do and so when uh, uh, murli joined as a second employee of equitas both of you actually sat across each other at one table because no one was willing to give a place on rent to an unknown finance company 
how did you how did you yeah. go about building it building it from that stage yes yeah, so <clears throat> murli was also in chola long back with me uh, yeah. so he joined as head of hr for me and uh, so we used to sit uh, at the opposite ends of a table and do some work and uh, even then on the first day itself i told murli when he joined uh, i want you to define what will be the culture of the company that we are going right. to create so mm. why don't you i i told him i have a meeting i'll go and come back but when i come back i want to see what kind of culture do we want in the company so why don't you put your thoughts and uh, you know let's discuss that so that yeah, was the first official discussion about the company it was all about uh, culture building building mm. a culture which will be you know uh, long sustainable and uh, uh, you know uh, so that's the first official discussion we ever had in uh, equitas and um, so he did that and um, then uh, as part of my effort to raise uh, initial capital i had met one uh, mr megana then who is the owner mm. of a college called uh, rajalakshmi engineering in chennai uh, right so someone introduced me to him and uh, then uh, he was showing a lot of interest uh, in the company that i was proposing to start and then he said where's your office i said i don't have an office because nobody is giving me a space every time right. you some new nbfc or new finance company then they say oh, right. oh it's too risky and nobody was willing to give in fact one guy agreed to give and then okay. he went back because he right. said when i told him microfinance he said he heard it as microsoft so, <laughs> <laughs> so when finally i gave him a letter in microfinance he said no 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 you should told me it is microsoft let's talk about talk about the initial help that came for your mfi venture uh, initial investments came from mr anandan who was your md at cholamandala and mr algappan uh, the then chairman of murugappa group and mr nandakumar of mannapuram finance and you needed more capital and as you mentioned you were introduced to mr Magnathan the owner of Raj Lakshmi Raj Lakshmi Engineering College initially he seemed interested but finally he did not invest why did he not invest <laughs> i had never asked him that but you must have got a sense of why the investment did not come through yeah i mean uh, he was a nice guy he gave me an office fully furnished 3000 square feet office with ac everything he just gave it to me free and when i told him i'll at least pay the electricity bill that also he refused he said nothing doing uh, he said when his father used to give his car to someone who wanted to use it he always used to say it seems fill the car and give don't give an empty car so he says that uh, so that way he didn't even take electricity bill from me he was mm. a very nice guy but i mm. think somewhere uh, on the on the commercial part of it i don't know i mean i really never asked him but maybe some of he felt that it is it may not yield uh, returns for him or something like that so he never gave me money and i was not uh, wanting to embarrass him by asking him why or anything i just left it uh, so he didn't give me but basically as yes, the initial funding came from mr anandan alagappan and uh, nandakumar and uh, <clears throat> so we started with the company and uh, the in those days the minimum capital requirement was 2 crores for uh, nbc but yeah. uh, i had set myself a target of 10 crores because in india at that point in time in 2007 there was not a single nbfc mfi which had started with a 10 crore initial capital it right. was always very small so i said let us at least put 10 crore as a minimum benchmark if i don't get it i will not start it and so finally we were able to get that kind of money and then we started off so for 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 nearly 8 to 9 months you enjoyed the hospitality of mr magnathan in san plaza and then moved to temple towers that's right so then finally we got an office in temple towers and so we were able to move move there 
and um, yes and uh, this was also around the time when more people started joining you uh, this is the time uh, probably baskar and mahalingam also joined uh, tell us some tell us about the role that they played in shaping this company up so i was reaching out to people uh, known to me to join to see how do we create a you know a, a very progressive kind of an organization and uh, so baskar uh, i i reached out to baskar uh, he was in the murugappa group yeah. he was with me for the entire 20 years mm-hmm. and subsequently had moved to the group level he was the uh, head of uh, tax and uh, you know audit at the group level mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so i reached out to him because he is a very strong finance person i'm i'm not right. that strong in finance but he is very strong in finance and he is very well respected and regarded as a conservative financier financeman mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's an image that you want to have uh, for a startup company that you have a conservative cfo so right. i wanted him very specifically so i went to his house i talked to him he was just not convinced and because he was sitting in a good position at a group a large group and this is a small startup and nobody knew how the startup will shape mm. so he was really not interested finally i told him that you know i wanted to take him for a field visit and after that you know he can take his call so i again mm. reached out to one of the other mfis um, operating in chennai and with their help i took baskar to the field and uh, you know he saw the group Uh, meetings and the interactions and all that and i think that really changed his mind to the whole company that we are proposing and he probably felt that yes this company is something that is uh, giving so much of support to the you know underprivileged and i think he wanted to be part of that journey That's so true. i think that feel visit really turned him around and he immediately agreed to join a feel visit that you organized for him turned him around and he could see what Uh, the company could do for these people and he agreed to join and and uh, what about mahalingam he had a it uh, and you had a yes. vision you had a vision of having a strong technology base for the company so how did you convince him and uh, and what is the contribution that he has made over the years so mahal was a easier uh, easier process i think he just agreed the moment i told him he just agreed so mm-hmm. and he joined us and uh, you know from beginning itself we said we will be high on tech and uh, our process efficiency has to be really high because microfinance industry is purely manual so we said that we need to reduce our lending rate by improving our efficiency and not charging customers for our inefficiency so that's our uh, take and ma was really instrumental in helping me set up a very strong technology base and in fact uh, we used to invite lot of other mfis to our office and give them a full demo of uh, our technology process that we had set up so that you know they could also take it uh, in their system if they so felt right uh, let me let me also uh, ask you about uh, you know the the whole experience of choosing the chairman for chairman you wanted a man of impeccable reputation you had jotted down the list of people on in your diary which contained names of eminent personalities such as uh, the chairman of sale uh, mr krishnamurthy then mr rc bhargava who was then the chairman of maruti uh, also i understand of mr tn session who was a former chief election commissioner and uh, probably mr ramabhadran the cmd of then cmd of uh, indian overseas bank but the name of mr n rangachari was on top why was that Yes, because uh, of course I didn't know him at all in those yeah. days personally. But you know, he was the first chairman of IRDA, 
and uh, in chola i remember that you know when we applied for our license also uh, he was the one it was under his signature that we got the license for insurance in chola mm. and uh, i had read a lot of articles about uh, what a great person he was and all that at the mm. same time extremely simple and a very friendly kind of a person and uh, the entire insurance privatization rollout in india was a scam free uh, process absolutely right. no scam at all Yeah. and the first nearly 20 insurance company licenses were issued by mr rangachari and not a whiff of scandal not a whiff of uh, you know uh, you know misdeeds or anything not one not even one whiff so he, he was such a straightforward person that you know he was able to bring about so much of system control or process in irda yeah. that the yeah. entire privatization was a smooth process for india and right. uh, so i then i know so so i thought that you know somebody like him i mean he's like god to me so i thought somebody like him if he can come as a chairman because nobody knows me because mm. i am an unknown entity and i keep telling people i am going to start a company they laugh or whatever they turn away but if i can tell them that mr rangachari is a chairman suddenly they will take me seriously uh, mm. they, because they know that somebody like him won't just come and associate with anybody so that's why somehow his name was something that i had put right at the top and i was so keen right. on getting him so one inter- interesting piece of anecdote that i've read is that uh, the day uh, you know you you put his name in the diary your wife saw this and she realized that you were serious about setting up a company and asked you so you were really setting up a company is that is that is that so yes so <clears throat> so in house there was some level, level of protest because we are not business people <laughs> so we need a monthly salary at the end of every month to run the house and we mm. mentally we are not able to visualize uh, you know that you know month, end of the month salary won't come so yeah. so my wife was against business because earlier in my <clears throat> in my in our in our family my other brother had started a business and it went into ruin and mm. you know actually we were we were almost uh, you know on the roads at mm. some point in time so all this was in our memory and mm. so there's a lot of uh, protest against starting a business uh, but when uh, i told her that mr rangachari is agreed to become the chairman and also mr vaidyanathan uh, mm. from integrated enterprises he was my neighbor in he is still my neighbor in chennai mm. so <clears throat> and he is known to my wife as a very highly respected person again in the society So when I told her that these two agreed to become directors uh, of the company, that's when she finally thought that this thing is really serious. <laughs> and uh, maybe it will work probably because if these two kind of people willing to associate, then there must be something in it. You went to Hyderabad to meet Mr. Rangachari. He was then the financial advisor to the government of Andhra Pradesh, which is then headed by Chandra Bunaidu. And the meeting was arranged by his auditor. who kept on telling you that mr rangachari would not accept your proposal tell us about the meeting the experience and how you convinced him and help us recall that day so um, uh, there's a person called vasudevan by my namesake in dcb in hyderabad so yeah. he was reporting to me in dcb mm. and uh, he is a well connected person in uh, hyderabad so mm. i reached out to him and told him vasu i need mr rangachari as the chairman of my company can you do something about it mm. and is first to responses of course no problem sir we'll do it <laughs> so, and he is always a very positive guy and also currently works in equitas for the information okay so 
So anyway, uh, then he contacted uh, Mr. J. Balasubramaniam, who is the auditor of Mr. Rangachari. And mm. through him, he organized a meeting. And then mm-hmm. I flew down to Hyderabad and then I met uh, Mr. J.B. And uh, Mr. J. Balasubramaniam said, no, 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 there's no way he will agree. Uh, because being on the board of companies is not that easy a cakewalk. There's a lot of risk associated with that. Mm. And so he's unlikely to agree. You're wasting your time. I said, mm. please arrange one meeting and after that if it fails no problem so he said okay i am anyway going to his house now you can just join me so Mm. i tagged along with him we went to his house and uh, he introduced me uh, as a friend of his friend Mm. but srangachari didn't i mean there's no connect between us so he just ignored me actually and Mm. they were both talking away and there's a cricket match going so they were watching that and talking and all Mm. that Mm. And uh, then, then finally, uh, JB said, that, "No, he wants to talk to you about some company that is going to start, and he wants mm. you to be the chairman of that company." Mm. Then Mr. Rangachari said, "No, I am not interested. I don't want to get into anything which is unknown and all that." Then uh, finally, I got an opportunity to tell him what I wanted to do. Mm. Then I started talking about microfinance and its impact on the people. And uh, the the fire and transparent kind of a company that we wanted to create, and uh, things like that. And then I also told him that Mr. Vaidena, an integrator, has agreed yeah. to be the first director on the board. Okay. Uh, then he said, "Oh, Vaidhi, Vaidhi is agreed. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I'll also think about it. That's what mm-hmm. he said." So later I realized that Vaidhi, Mr. Vaidhinathan's father and Mr. Rangacharya are very very close friends. Okay. And, uh, so he knows their family well. And mm. so he thought that if Vaidhi is agreed, then okay, maybe this boy is not that bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so finally he agreed. And uh, after I came back to Chennai, Mr. Jay Balasubrani called me and said uh, Rangacharya is agreed. So yeah. I mean, it so, was ecstatic for me. Right. So you got a, while going, you know, you you, you returned to Chennai, Chennai thinking it was going to be a no from Mr. Rangachari. And while going home from the airport, you got a call from the auditor saying Rangachari agreed. Uh, is it is it something, uh, it was uh, the Vaidyanathan's uh, appointment and uh, the fact that Mr. Vaidyanathan agreed to become uh, the uh, um, uh, director on your board, uh, on the company's board, a clincher for Mr. Rangachari because Mr. Rangachari probably trusted Mr. Vaidyanathan's wisdom. That's right. Absolutely. Totally. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, when he decided to take over as the chairman, uh, as the chairman of your company, uh, what happened next? And what are the, what were the things that he told you? Uh, and, you know, what are the advices that he gave you probably uh, made you uh, change things a, a bit here and there in terms of strategic vision? So uh, I had a discussion with him. I went to Hyderabad again after he agreed. I went to mm-hmm. Hyderabad again and then uh, had a detailed discussion about the whole company, formation, philosophy, yeah. purpose, everything. And uh, also to give him some background about myself and uh, you know what we are planning and all that. Mm. And so, so I told him that you know I needed his help in setting up a company with uh, the highest standards of governance. Mm. And um, you know, uh, so that's what I asked him, and uh, he said, okay, we will do it and all that. Mm. And then over the next few months, he really helped me form the board. You know, uh, get uh, get the right kind of people on joining the board. And uh, and then we also set up, in fact, in almost uh, at the starting point of the company itself, 
we set up a committee of the board on governance so we had a governance committee of the board mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i mean we are not forget being listed we are just a small newborn company forget mm-hmm. listing and all that mm-hmm. but we governance so seriously that we formed a uh, separate committee of the board on governance to oversee the governance in the company mm-hmm. and uh, then within two years we went and applied to crystal for a governance rating also right. uh, and we were the seventh uh, highest governance rated company in the country at that time in 2010 so right, right. so, so he so he was very instrumental in setting up the governance framework and the structure for the company and ensuring that you know uh, it runs very deep in the system right from day one right right absolutely uh, you know the let me let me take you to the first international recognition for you when the ifc invited uh, an arm of the world bank invited you to speak uh, it was organizing a conference in washington and they invited you to speak uh, on how you were able to lower the interest rates of microfinance in india uh, tell us about the experience how did you how did you combine the goals of social development with the company making a profit how do, how could the two be reconciled yeah so so uh, obviously you need to make profits to sustain and be alive uh, mm. but at the same time the desire from our side was to see how do we do it at a most sustainable manner for the borrowers right and interest rates in those days when we started the company the interest rates used to be anywhere between 35 to 60% right <laughs> that are the interest rates so we uh, did our own projections financial projections for a five year period and uh, tried to project a certain level of growth and also built in certain operating efficiencies uh, into the projections and then said that uh, finally if we can operate at this scale and at this level of efficiency uh, mm. and we still need to make a decent returns on the uh, capital then what's the lending rate that we should have and Absolutely. that combo we reached a finally a lending rate of 25 and 1/2% uh including uh processing fees right, and right. so the first rate that we rolled out was 25 and a half when the market was between 35 to 60% right. and um, also we were the first mfi in the world to disclose our actual reducing balance all inclusive interest rate to the customer by printing it in the loan passbook Mm. and uh, an, an organization called mftransparency.org which right right i was just coming to that i think it was in 2009 within a year of starting uh, equitas when you received the pleasant surprise uh, uh, by by the way of an email from mftransparency.org it's it was it's an organization set up by nobel laureate uh, professor mohammad yunus uh, which declared equitas as the most transparent mfi globally uh, what did it mean for you and the rest of the company Yeah so it was really an acknowledgement of what we wanted to do from the beginning which is that uh, the word equitas equitas is a latin word which means equitable which means being yeah. fair and transparent so everything that we do in equitas has to be fair and completely transparent so that's the clear mandate we set from the day one and so this recognition from mf transparency was one more confirmation that we were on the right track and mm-hmm. uh, you know so we just wanted to continue and keep doing more of uh, that so that we distinguish and set a, a, a clear benchmark uh, you know uh, in on those parameters but did this recognition also bring along some criticism because there were some people and some points of view that emerged during that time which said that you were growing equitas was growing because you were lending left right and center you were overlending and so on uh, how did you respond to this criticism 
see in tamil nadu in those days when we started the there was not no uh, organized nbfc mfi operating in tamil nadu okay. it was largely the small ngo mfis and this uh, ngo mfis typically they have a problem in raising money from the banks because of various reasons so their growth was also always very small even mm. though they were operating for years together they were very small and mm. when we started it was a very professional company and uh, we went to a private equity right from day one so we were able to raise a lot of capital and bank loans kept, kept coming so we were actually growing in tamil nadu uh, yeah. much much faster than the older ngos and uh, so we knew that there will be a lot of angst created in their mind about uh, whether we will be taking away their share or will be trading on their feet and things like that mm. so so i reached out to all the ngo mfis from day one trying to you know build a personal relationship with them and wrap up with them to assuage that you know we are not here to hurt or harm anybody and mm. uh, if there is any reason that they felt that they are being hurt by us then we will definitely take uh, corrective measures so that we don't our intent is not that mm. uh, you know um so we did do a lot of activities on that um, right, right you know there's one thing which is that the goal of most of the mfis in those days forget today but in those days the goal of most mfis were to help uplift the poor from poverty that is the That's goal right. of most all mfis but the way they were going about is there's one more un- unsaid element in that statement to uplift the poor from poverty yeah. by me by me that by yeah. me was an unsaid statement so yeah right. suppose, suppose you come and uplift somebody from poverty i should still be happy because my mission that's is not out right but i'm but i'm unhappy why am i unhappy because it's not done by me that's so right that one small unsaid element was very starkly there in everybody's mind so we didn't want to trample on anybody i mean i don't see if you are helping somebody i don't have to go and help the same guy there's so many people who need help why are why not we go and focus elsewhere absolutely so we tried our best to ensure that we created a you know a harmonious relation at least i personally traveled all over tamil nadu and met every single ngo and uh, created a rapport with them at a personal level and you also you know within you, let me let me also bring you to the formation of a credit bureau you within 10 months of equita starting its operations you suggested formation of a company that could manage the lending data and act like a credit bureau uh, it, this was in your view important because uh, there was mistrust uh, how did you bring this about yes so actually within two months of starting equitas uh, we got, uh, called a meeting of all the mfi including ngo mfis operating in tamil nadu we mm. called for a meeting and they all came and i used to sit be because sit be was one common funder to everybody mm. so sit be had a lot of voice mm. in the industry so i talked to sitbi and asked them whether they would help me in this process of uh, you know consolidating borrower data so that mm. we don't overlend uh, not knowing that someone else has lent to that same person so mm. sitbi was very happy so under their uh, flag under their ages we called meeting of uh, all mfis in tamil nadu within two months of equita starting operations mm. and uh, then we started doing some work in tamil nadu and then i reached out to vijay mahajan uh, who was running basics in hyderabad in those days right, right, and brish right. brish mohan who was uh, a former uh, you know ed of uh, sidbi yeah so i reached out to them and told them that the, i'm trying to do something like this in tn but is there something that they would like to do at all india level uh, right. so they said yeah why not you start the process we'll all support you 
So on, on, I remember on 1st October 2008, uh, mm-hmm. I sent out a mail to all the MFIs, NBFC MFIs operating in India, mm-hmm. uh, uh, saying that, you know, Mr. Vijay Mahajan and Brishmohan uh, Saab has uh, agreed to support a process of consolidating database of borrowers in the industry so mm-hmm. that we can try and prevent overlending and uh, overborrowing. And uh, then we had our first meeting in Delhi in the December of 2008. Uh, where all the MFIs uh, met, and th- that is where the journey of starting uh, a credit bureau came. Then we reached out to RBA. RBA said, no, we already given license to four entities to start credit bureau in mm. India. I don't want to give one more license, so you work with any one of the mm. four. And so Vijay Mahajan said, let's work with Highmark, uh, because they seem to be the most uh, hungry uh, for business. Mm. So we tied up with Highmark. And uh, we did a lot of joint working with Highmark to make Highmark a very strong credit bureau for the MFA industry. Right. In fact, the MFIN guidelines were stricter than RBI. So you must be very proud of your early association with MFIN because today MFIN is a very strong organization. Yes. So Vijay Mahajan was the instrumental force behind all the MFIs coming together long before, uh, you know, uh, it was required or mandated by RBI. And uh, then, so Vijay Mahajan became the first uh, uh, chairman of uh, MFIN, and I was the first vice chairman of MFIN to help him. And we kept organizing meetings uh, of all the MFIs, and we uh, thrashed out a code of conduct for all the MFIs, uh, which was was finally more stringent than finally in 2011 when RB came with a set of guidelines. Our code of conduct was actually even stricter than that. So we... We drew out a code of conduct, we tried to implement that, and we put a disciplinary action committee of MFIN we created. All complaints of uh, transgression on code of conduct we used to pump into that uh, committee. And the committee will call the people, and the board was very, very active in those days, you know. The board of MFIN was very active. We used to call the MFIs and tell them they can't do this kind of transgression, they have to stop. And if they don't stop, we will write to RBA saying that we are removing you from MFIN because you are not willing to follow the code of conduct. So we used right. to be very tough and uh, strict in those days. And uh, I think it really helped a lot at those mm. stage. You were also highly influenced by the basics model, which you hold in very high uh, regard. You know, you went to Andhra for a three-day visit to basics, uh, found, uh, which was founded by Vijay Mahajan. Uh, how do you describe this exposure? Uh, because the basics, you believe that the basics model was very, was excellent and uh, it's a very good model. Yes, so uh, Vijay Mahajan's basics, uh, they had a program to of three days once a quarter, but they were willing to invite any external person to go through their entire program. So I, I enrolled and joined and went. I didn't know Vijay at that time. Um, so I just enrolled through the website. And then they took us to mm. the field, and uh, we had a good two-day field visit. We went and met the branch managers, field staff, groups, villages, everywhere. And also, they explained mm. about the basic uh, triad model. Uh, triad model is a triangle model where they have one end of the triangle is financial support, the other end is livelihood support, and the third is uh, uh, you know uh, health and education support. So they formed this three support system and then they said that their whole philosophy of basics was that just giving money alone is not enough. We yeah. need to also see how to help them uh, use that money properly through a livelihood support program and also mm. form a producer consortium, consumer consortium to help them negotiate better with various stakeholders 
and mm. also say what can we do on on the health part of it to make them in fact vijay mahajan used to keep saying that mm. you know uh, if a, if a poor person um, you know takes a loan and uh, mm. uses that money to uh, buy food that that loan should be treated as private sector for banks because when mm. you give money to a company to maintain its mission machinery it's mm. called a private sector loan and That's here, right. the person's body is the machinery which is the livelihood producing machinery for the family if that body is to be maintained that should be private sector that's how his thinking used to go in those days so it right, is a right, right. model and when i went to the branches the branch managers used to show me uh, that they are you know, teaching people on uh, variety of skills and then agriculture they used to teach people on better uh, methods of agriculture to improve productivity etc but the only thing i felt in that model which was a little weak was that the same person was giving loans and also doing other work and i right, felt right. that it's not a scalable model because it's difficult to get large number of people who will be highly skilled both in financial um, matters as well as in non financial matters uh, vasu let me bring you now to the you know your your most recent uh, success story uh, which is becoming a bank in 2015 rbi invited applications uh, from well run mfis to apply to become a small bank 10 of you got selected tell us about this run us through how it happened the experience and 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 how it you know how how setting up this institution and the evolution of equitas as a small finance bank and probably eventually as a scheduled commercial bank later yes so we were one of the 10 um, uh, licensed uh, allottees and uh, in fact we were the second to go live as an mm. sfb uh, after capital sfb which from chandigarh uh, mm. they were a cooperative bank so it was easier for them because they already had the system for handling savings current account etc mm. so they went live uh, i think about 6 months prior to us and then we went live um, so when we got the license itself we took a call that within 2 months of becoming a bank we should repay all our existing bank loans which are right. obviously at a rate higher than what a bank can borrow mm. and so we consciously worked towards uh, you know getting uh, that process in place and when we did finally become a bank within 2 months we actually ended up paying the entire bank loans and settled it out right um, so so that's something that happened and um, the the we set up uh, initially or we we decided to set up 350 liability branches uh besides the existing asset offices that we used to have mm. and so we went about creating that it was a big learning it was uh, even though i did have some small stint in dcb bank uh, on the liability side but it's still a mega major learning for me as well as for the entire system we are right. no longer on liability and banking so it was a big uh, learning and lot of learning curve we had to go through finally to get it off the ground so that was the question i was actually coming to uh, how different structurally and from a mindset and uh, philosophy uh, ap- approach point of view uh, is running an mfi as opposed to as against running a bank because bank is a very complex uh, structure organizationally and also the guidelines are very different uh, you are you are bound by um, various rules and regulations uh, there are capital adequacy requirements it's and their asset uh, asset liability requirements their alco meetings their interest rate fixation etc etc how difficult was it in the in initially is to make the transition so yeah it was a major challenge major challenge 
but with an rba they had set up one small division to help the sfbs uh, you know uh, kind of fall into place so mm. we used to lean on those teams in rba also they used to give us lot of guidance on the compliance and regulatory framework uh, thing because we had really no idea which rules of rba applied to us we had zero idea so they mm. it set up a team in rba and that team really worked closely with us to help all of us uh, understand exactly what we are supposed to do as a small finance bank and mm. um, and yes you are right you know running a bank is uh, is not comparable to running an nboc at all and nboc right. is still a very narrow focused entity whereas the bank is just too broad based in, impossibly broad based <laughs> and the risk levels of a bank are incomparable to that of an nbfc and uh, obviously the opportunities are also incomparable the bank is obviously a lot more uh, opportunities for a bank compared to an nbfc uh, and i think uh, it's a journey that uh, is the culmination of uh, starting as an nbfc as you right. used to see in those days you know an nbfc is like a bachelorhood bachelorhood is fantastic it's very flexible lot of freedom you enjoy everything but at the end of the day that's not life finally right. you have to get married and yeah. uh, with all the pulls and pressures of marriage married life but still that's a final goal that one has to go through to feel right. fulfillment and so the bank is like that there's a lot of pulls and pressures of a bank right you must have gone through very anxious moments in the running of the bank uh, give us a few uh, anecdotes from these um the first was actually getting compliance person in place because mm-hmm. we are chennai based so chennai based the natural talent of banking uh, banking skill talent in chennai is not uh, available naturally you know it's all towards uh, bombay yeah uh, so getting talent itself was a big challenge in uh, chennai mm-hmm. and uh, especially talent from the lending side we don't have an issue because there's so many nbfc so we could always uh, get talent mm-hmm. but on the liability side it was not very easy mm-hmm. and uh, from the controls perspective like compliance on risk we really had a challenge and um, so we had to hire temporary you know retired bankers uh, on on a contract basis to run our compliance on risk for some time before mm. actually get uh, proper employees to join and um, it was a major challenge and at some point initially i didn't know much so i was actually quite uh, relaxed but the mm. more i started understanding about compliance uh, then the worries really started deep then i knew that we are so far away <clears throat> from being high on compliance uh, that that worry started growing very very deep uh, at some point in time and uh, then we had to do a lot of work and the complaints head who joined us uh, as a perm- first permanent employee uh, who is still there so he really put a lot of structures in place to bring about governance structure on complaints and i think you know, the journey really started there but there are a lot of sleepless moments i used to have on that i can well imagine that because uh, running a bank uh, is far 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 more complex than running an mbsc as you said uh there are also issues of uh, on the assets both on the assets and the liability sides but a modern day banking has got to do uh, as much with uh, technology as it has got to do with financial management uh, how did you how did you go about facing the uh, fixing the tech piece because uh, modern day banking is so digital that is also on your palm tops and which is something that you probably didn't uh, get to do on such a scale uh, while running an mfi Yes, the investment in IT was like uh, mind blowing as an as a bank. I mean, uh, what we could have probably invested in ten year in an NBOC, we invested in the first year of the bank. 
and uh, right. it was mind blowing and uh, it it there's really no control i mean i was not in control it just kept going all over the place and it used to say mm. we need this we need that and it just kept going that's it there's no uh, role that i had a, i had to play at all in that it was all just minimum requirements and uh, mm. you know the the entire gamut of uh, cyber security uh, you know your data exposed to the public in an nboc customers never access you directly in a bank mm. they access you all the time through multiple channels so building security in all friends in all manner possible and then when customer logs in directly the experience here the speed with which is uh, given turn around times i mean too much of difference compared to an nboc and yep. uh, so we did try our best to ensure that we were high on tech right from beginning and uh, today the investments uh, journey continues in it so we continue to have a lot of projects going to keep enhancing our uh, you know digital skills and capabilities as we go by but it is definitely something which is top of the mind for any banker i'm sure absolutely and also on the on the treasury management side um how difficult how steep was the learning curve because treasury management for an nbfc is very different uh, for treasury management of a bank well i think that we got away i think a little easier because even um, mm. in as an nbfc we used to have our people in treasury to maintain our borrowing from the banks and all that so some little bit of uh, experience on that was there in the system already and um, and as a small finance bank anyway we don't deal with foreign exchange and all they are all purely only rupee and um, mm. so our treasury i think was uh, smoother it, it it just fell in place fairly smoothly one of our existing staff mm. moved in treasury he is still the number 2 in treasury department and i think uh, treasury has been uh, in my view very smooth for us uh, let me let me try and get Uh, you uh, you know try and get uh, our listeners to understand the experience of floating a public issue so when you became a bank it was necessary to go for a public issue as an mfi you had 93% foreign investment but as a bank you needed to reduce it to 49% uh, how did you go about doing this yes yeah, so public issue was the only option to get domestic uh, institutional investors because they won't invest in unlisted companies so we had to necessarily list the holding company so we went ahead and listed the holding company and uh, the holding company as per rbi guidelines needed to have a 40% lock in in the bank for a 5 year period and another rbi guideline is that the bank uh, has to itself list within 3 years so we were really mm. hoping that there will be some concession given from rbi to not list the bank within 3 years but mm. allow us the fifth year so that we can actually merge the whole co with a bank and have only one listed entity in the system and not two but unfortunately that uh, was really not available to us and so we went uh, had to go and list the bank separately and the whole co was also listed already uh, so we are now uh, right. uh, you know having two listed entities for actually the same business were you anxious before the run up to the listing where the issue was 17 times eventually oversubscribed it was a, you got a favorable response it was a blockbuster of sorts but did it what did you did you pass through some very anxious moments before the listing yeah it was the first listing experience for me i had not done that before and uh, so we did do all the investor meetings and all that um and uh, you know we also had to highlight the fact that uh, the holding company and the bank has a 5% donation to the uh, csr activities against the 2% mandated 
So there's a lot of uh, feedback from the bankers that whether mm. that will be acceptable at the investor level. But we said that no, that's part of the ethos of the system and it can't be changed. And uh, then when we went for the roadshows, they told me that uh, in uh, Gujarat, at least we don't talk too much about this uh, 5% stuff. They they may not like it. But I said, no, that's part of the system. I can't, I can't just keep it off. You know, it's an investor right. information and they need to know. And so in uh, Ahmedabad and uh, Rajkot, when we had our uh, investor meets, we, I, I did highlight that. And very surprisingly, investors came forward and some of them, when they met me later on one-on-one, on one, they said that, you know, we have so far been recommending uh, IPOs uh, for subscription to our members based on the financials. And mm. this is the first time I'm going to recommend an IPO with a lot of happiness in my mind. So that's the mm. feedback that some of those people gave me. So it was it was very interesting. And um, so we did go through a lot of uh, struggle to get the IPO off the ground um, because it was a large issue in those days. 2,200 crores was in those days one of the largest issues. And uh, for a bank which does, does not have any background, uh, as an NBOC, we have a lot of background. Right. But as a bank, we had zero background. Bank was That's not right. even in existence at that time. It was April when we did the IPO. Bank started only in September. So. It was all about um, right. giving them an idea of the future of the bank and ask them to invest today. So it was not such an right. easy job, but uh, finally, thankfully, we did uh, get a 17 times subscription. Absolutely. Uh, finally, let me come to the final chapter of your professional life. You have decided to move on from Equitas Bank. Uh, what next? So um, this uh, desire to do something for the society is something which has been there uh, for some time now. So our own Equitas Trust, we are doing a lot of activities. We run eight schools, uh, nearly 7,000 children studying in the schools. And uh, we do a lot of work with the children to ensure that even post-school, we are there with them till they get a good college and then uh, good placements, etc. And uh, we do run medical camps. I think more than 8 million people have benefited through our medical camps. Yeah, in fact, we tied up with all the state governments during the COVID period to organize uh, vaccination camps for COVID. And uh, we have, uh, through our camps, more than 5 million people have been vaccinated through our camps that we organized and brought people to the camps. Um, skill training, job fairs, payment dweller, rehabilitation, I mean, you name it. We have an extremely right. robust, strong social program going in Equitas. But parallelly, right. um, parallelly, we had also started a trust in my daughter's name about uh, six, seven years or eight years back called Varshini Lam Trust. Mm. And uh, in that yeah. trust, we started an adoption center. There we have been running it for about five, six years now. It's a state central government uh, accredited uh, adoption pro program that we run there. And recently, we have launched a doorstep uh, therapy service for uh, disabled children in the right. zero to three year category for uh, people who are mm. from the low income or semi-urban rural where they don't have either money or access to proper therapy for their babies. And if uh, at the earliest stage you don't attend to the babies, the, the deficiency becomes a permanent and then the child has to live with it forever. So if we can only right, right. at the zero to three year level, the probability of the child overcoming the deficiency is very high for the rest of its life. So we just launched that program mm. and uh, we just need lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money for uh, doing this program as well as scaling it up. 
uh, and uh, you know my own, absolutely my own corpus in the bank is very small actually you know in the bank uh, right from the beginning in equitas i never wanted to make money for myself it was never my thought i just wanted to create a very good strong professional you know organization so in 2009 i right. took a call reduce my salary because i didn't need so much salary my family didn't need it so we took a decision to reduce my salary in 2009 to 45 lakhs per annum mm. and for 10 years i mm. never took an increase i just took never took an increase mm. for next 10 years it was 45 lakhs for the rest of the 10 years no bonus no incentives no esops no nothing um because right. i said that even this money i am not able to spend <laughs> why would i need more money uh, and so similarly on the bank also i kept diluting as an nboc also i kept diluting from day one i never had much of a stake in the uh, nboc or the bank and today my stake is just about 2% so but now i realize that maybe that's a mistake i made maybe i should have tried to create a larger wealth for ourselves which we don't have to spend on ourselves you know i mean the till we were thinking about ourselves we didn't need the money but when we stop thinking about yourself then suddenly you see that yeah. money can do so much more outside of you and uh, so now my right. whole thought process is how do i create a very large corpus for this varshini loan trust so that the Absolutely. monthly regular income should be able to help it run mm. uh, large sustainable programs Uh, you know take us through the formation of the edit trust uh, uh, did you have it in your mind from the beginning yeah so uh, uh, we started uh, the edit trust uh, equitas trust uh, within two months of starting operations of the company uh, mm-hmm. so this thought of giving back was there in our mind uh, even before the company was formed and right. uh, as soon as the company was formed we passed a resolution that 5% of our profit will go to the trust Uh, so so these are the structural things we put in place right from day one right right and also some people told me that trusts are generally areas where a lot of uh, you know um, management issues happen and uh, people become you know have vested interest they run it in their own personal interest and all that so to avoid all that what we did is uh, that in the original trust deed we said that the board of equitas will be the only one who is competent to appoint or remove trustees Right, right so that it is always under the control of equitas and not under anyone else's control and Absolutely. Uh, so that's how it started so we are now running about eight schools in tamil nadu with about 7000 plus uh, children studying there we give them high quality english medium education these children are typically uh, children from uh, families whose annual incomes are less than 2 lakh rupees and uh, many of them are first generation learners and uh, it's all english medium that we provide them uh, of course we do a lot of other activities to make it a holistic education for the children uh, we also handhold them even after they graduate out of the school <clears throat> we handhold them we try to find out the right uh, additional courses they should take to make themselves better empowered uh, by the time they finish their graduation and wherever required we fund those additional courses because many times they don't have the money for that um yeah and uh, then the medical program is another large mega project that we run we have a tie with over 900 hospitals across the country uh, we conduct nearly 300 camps every month almost 50000 people benefit on a monthly basis and nearly 80 lakh people have benefited so far through our programs uh, <clears throat> then we do skill training for people from low income families yeah. nearly 5 and 1/2 lakh people have been skill trained so far 
and some survey that we did earlier revealed that almost 55 percent of those who have been skilled by us uh, have reported an increase in their family income between 500 and 2000 rupees per month so there's some amount of improvement that we are able to see on their income levels thank you so much uh, mr p n vasudevan for this very fascinating and insightful conversation for taking the time out and drop by to have this conversation with us exclusively at earshot giving us a glimpse of what you have achieved through very difficult circumstances and also sharing experience about how to overcome challenges think big think with a clear vision in mind and also adopt a people first philosophy uh, because that is what life is all about thank you so much mr vasudevan and all the best for your future endeavors thank you thank you garo and thank you so much